We, we actually hear around today beginning yeah. to talk about within days that they're going to begin to enrich uranium beyond yeah. the limitations of the JCPOA. None of that is acceptable. Welcome to the Political Notebook podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about the Iran situation. It's a fast-changing situation with a lot of developments. So just so you know, we're recording this on Monday, June 24th. And I was watching the NBA draft last Thursday when the news broke uh, that President Trump had authorized military strikes against Iran. But then as the planes were in the air, apparently on the way to conduct the strikes, the operation was called off. So this pump fake happened after uh, Iran had uh, shot down an unmanned U.S. drone earlier last week and also uh, purportedly uh, placed some mines on a few foreign ships uh, that were in their area. So so let's talk about just where this is coming from. Uh, the original, talk about the original Iran deal that was, that was canceled by uh, by Trump that has led up to this current uh, kind of uh, brinksmanship. And we'll also talk about where, where it goes from here. And just to tout Robert Robb's foreign policy credentials, uh, he was uh, one of the few conservative thinkers to oppose the Iraq war. You know, I, I read a lot of conservative writers commenting on this situation, having to sort of apologize or say, you know, I, I was wrong about the Iraq war, but I've apologized for it. And here's what I think now. So you don't have to, you don't have to apologize for that, but you also were in support of the first Iran deal that Obama made. That was, uh, Mike Pence, uh, refers to the, the JCPOA, the first Iran deal that was negotiated by Obama, um, which Trump canceled, uh, so what was, let's start off here. What was the point of that deal uh, that Obama made, and why did you support it? There was a belief that Iran was in the process of acquiring the ability to build a nuclear weapon and the ballistic missile capability of uh, delivering it extensively and perhaps ultimately um, clear to the United States. So the purpose was to uh, prevent that from happening. I think that the Obama administration oversold uh, the specifics of the deal. My own view is that international agreements are not enforceable. They're a statement of um, commitment. Uh, And the question is, is the statement of commitment genuine. To me, what the original deal did was simply to buy time. Uh, Iran agreed not to uh, develop enough enriched uranium sufficiently to build a bomb, not to enrich it beyond the point of use for civilian purposes, uh, the higher level of enrichment that would be necessary for a nuclear bomb. Um, and I thought that in the circumstances, uh, that that seemed to be a genuine commitment uh, to be rewarded by the lifting of U.S. sanctions and uh, the ability of Iran to develop economically uh, better than 
it had. And to me, in the circumstances, buying time was valuable, um, that it was worth signing the agreement and seeing what happened, uh, as opposed to continuing the bricksmanship that was developing at that point, uh, short of what the military calls kinetic action. Uh, but certainly an awful lot of brinksmanship in terms of, of the sanctions. So I thought it was worth buying the time. So when we teach this stuff at the high school level uh, about treaties and whatnot, the president can negotiate a treaty, but it's supposed to be approved or ratified by the Senate. Um, by a two-thirds vote of the Senate. By a two-thirds vote in the Senate. So uh, in this case, it was and the reason why Trump was able to cancel it, it was not a treaty in that sense. Uh, why didn't that, why wasn't that enacted uh, officially in a treaty? Uh, Obama did not have the votes in the U.S. Senate to uh, ratify or approve of the agreement. Uh, there were any, there were even many Democrats um, who opposed it in thought that it did not go far enough in restricting Iran's ability to develop its nuclear capability and its ability to develop its uh, ballistic missile capability. So he did not submit it. It was simply an agreement that he signed as president, which um, enabled Trump to withdraw from it. The, 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 the agreement was not just between the U.S. and Iran. Uh, there were several individual European countries in the European Union that also signed on to the deal. And those other countries have not withdrawn from it. Um, so at present, the, the deal still exists. The U.S. has simply withdrawn from it and is actively seeking to undermine it. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, it wasn't, definitely wasn't a surprise that Trump canceled it. He campaigned against it and <laughs> made it very clear that he didn't like it, called it the worst deal ever and and as opposed to all the other worst deal ever ever that he's identified and so and so he canceled it and so you know why why is we have these escalating tensions lately uh critics of that decision to cancel the deal will say well obviously you know the agreement was to reduce sanctions, reduce economic pressure, free up their economics just a little more so they can, and they would agree to not enrich uranium, slow down their ability to get nuclear. Well, if we back out of that and we add on sanctions back, uh, why would they cooperate with a deal that they're not getting a benefit from? So I think, I think the um, common perception is Iran doesn't like these sanctions. They were complying with the deal. So so they're trying to sort of rattle cages, make it uncomfortable for other European countries and other allies to sort of uh, put pressure on or, or, or call out the United States for breaking this deal to try to get rid of those sanctions again. The, the original Iranian approach was to try to get the European countries that are still signatories to the deal to adhere to it and um, figure out a way around the U.S. sanctions so that Iran could get the benefit 
of increased international trade. And the European countries vowed to do that. Uh, they said we would develop mechanisms where Iran can do business internationally uh, that would escape uh, U.S. sanctions. As it turns out, the European countries don't have the capability of doing that, uh, despite their stated willingness to do it. Uh, engaging in international trade just involves, uh, even if it doesn't involve a trade involving the United States, uh, the use of the U.S. financial system. And other businesses aren't willing to be locked out of that system or locked out of U.S. Um, markets, uh, even if their countries are seeking to devise ways to do business with Iran outside of the U.S. financial system. So uh, that vow from the European continuing um, signatories to the deal uh, turned out to be an empty promise. And the um, belief is, is that Iran is now sort of lashing out uh, with what objective in mind, I'm not sure, because it isn't a lack of will uh, by the European countries that has resulted in a failure to develop a mechanism to escape U.S. sanctions. They were willing to do it. They even set up a mechanism. It just simply can't be done the way international finance occurs today. So um, exactly what, the, what Iran hopes to achieve by this lashing out I'm not certain, or whether people who want to in Iran who want to lash out anyway um, now have the upper hand because the promised benefits of the deal um, have proved to be illusory. So there is no deal without the United States holding up its end of the bargain on on easing sanctions. Well, again, there, I, I think it's. I mean, the way that you bind the United States is through a treaty. Mm -hmm. um, Obama chose not to try to go that route. So um, President Trump is within his presidential authority to say, I disagree with what that other president right, did. Right. There's no. no treaty that binds me, and so I'm going to go in a different direction. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone's arguing they didn't have the legal right to do it. I think people are just questioning the, <clears throat> the judgment of that, but that's, but that's what... That's what he said before. So it's not like it's not like people didn't know that before they before they voted for him. Is it true that the United States was also um, not just implementing more sanctions, but had increased military presence uh, around Iran? Yes, there was a um, belief in the Trump administration that Iran was in the process of developing. Uh, plans uh, to attack U.S. interest in the region. And so we did beef up our military presence uh, in the region. Uh, and um, to a certain extent, they have. I mean, they shot down a, a, a intelligence-gathering drone. We claim in international waters. Iran claims it was in their territory. I'm inclined to believe our military over uh, their government. So... Um, we are in a very delicate situation where it is unclear what Iran is trying to achieve by lashing out. It's unclear how the Trump administration will respond to the lashing out. Uh, and 
um, we're all kind of on tender hooks where miscalculation could uh, result in a uh, shooting war that I don't think is in anybody's interest. So let's talk about that real quick. That news that I think scared a lot of people sort of uh, rattled me out of my enjoyment of the NBA draft, <laughs> uh, which is like, whoa, we were about to strike Iran with, you know, bombs. And um, I think a question that, you know, again, going back to you know, the way we teach this in, in, in class is that to, in order to go to war, you need to get authorization from Congress first, and then you, you get to go fight a war if they approve it. In this case, uh, they were acting uh, aggressively uh, without an authorization uh, from Congress. How are they allowed to do that? Uh, and, and if they did do that, do you think that would have been unconstitutional? It's a complicated question because of the passage by Congress of the War Powers Act, uh, which paradoxically was intended to curtail uh, the ability of a president to unilaterally take military action. But in essence, what Congress did is to say, we approve of the president taking military action when he think it's necessary for a period of time. Uh, I, I believe the period is something like 60 days. Um, and uh, if Congress then passes a resolution uh, to end that military action, the president has to comply. Uh, so arguably, Congress, in its exercise of its war declaration authority, have given presidents a temporary free pass. It's, it's not the way we were, um, the founders intended it to act. And I think it's worth noting that when the most two most horrendous attacks on the United States occurred, the bombing in Pearl Harbor and the 9-11 terrorist attacks, in both cases, before taking military action, the President of the United States went to Congress, and in the case of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, asked for a formal declaration of war. In the case of George W. Bush, asked for an authorization for the use of military force, specifically in retaliation for that event. Um, so uh, I think Congress has sort of given away its war-making, uh, its war declaration authority. The question is, can Congress do that? And there's uh, a lot of debate and yeah. dispute about that. I mean, because it seems like in this particular case, okay, let's say we do do that strike. Let's say that strike goes goes forward, and they retaliate more aggressively. Everything that I've read says that they've got plenty of capability to harm us directly in that region or our, you know, uh, other interests in that region. Then you have to respond from there. Then all of a sudden, you're basically in a full-scale scale war. Before And now you're asking Congress, are we allowed to do this? And what are they going to say? No, you don't have money to do that anymore. It's like, well, we're already in the war. So I don't, I don't like that. You know, that provision, I think, obviously, there are some situations where you need to attack right away, but it seems like that should be more like a defensive sort of maneuver. And, you, you know, you can get all the Congress together, you know, debate it for a day, two days. If it's, if it's really extreme like that, 
you wouldn't think it'd be that difficult to give an authorization to no to go it, to war. It does seem that um, President Trump has drawn a line on the taking of life. Um, he says that he uh, rejected the military strikes because he was told that it would probably result in 150 casualties or so of Iranians. The Trump administration has also set signals to Iran uh, that if there is an attack which involves the loss of American life, uh, then there would be a massive um, military retaliation for that. One of the problems with that, I think, is that you can't believe anything Trump says. I mean, he lies about everything. And, and you know, obviously... First time I heard him say that, you know, the obvious thing to think of is you didn't ask about the casualties until 10 minutes before it launched. Obviously, he knew that there would be casualties. They've they've come up with stories, uh, you know, explaining how he learned more information and stuff. But clearly, they would have given him an estimate right well, away. Well, well there, there can be antiseptic um, retaliatory uh, strikes. Um, Bill Clinton did that in response to some terrorist attacks against us, where he um, ordered the bombing of facilities that he knew would be empty at the time. Um, so you can get, um, in some respects, a um, antiseptic response. And it, it, but, yeah. I mean, you, you're right. He is a fairly erratic um, figure and tough to anticipate how he's going to respond in any situation. Yeah, and I think that, uh, you know, just the, the trustworthiness of the administration uh, tells you, I mean, it's, it's important, especially if you look at a, a foreign conflict like, right, that, like this. Um, the Trump administration doesn't have a lot of, you know, credibility with, with, with being, a, you know, in terms of honesty. So uh, I think that is problematic. I will say this, though, as much as I have a problem with <laughs> Trump uh, ethically and, and um, in general and with Trumpism in general, what I mean by that is the, the tendency to see um, to, the cult of personality, if you will, around, around Trump rather than uh, other principles uh, that you might prefer to see a, a political party being in support of. Um, I will say this, though, that at least they're not war-hungry. You know, it seems like even even the, the you know, the Trumpiest Trump supporters in Congress are not eager to get into another war. And some of the analysis you're seeing now is that um, Trump is resisting the efforts of the people around him, especially John Bolton, who is... Who is uh, he was very hawkish on Iran. It seems like Pompeo is hawkish on Iran. Uh, it seems like a lot of people surrounding him want to get more aggressive and even encourage military strikes against Iran, um, but that he is resistant to that, and a lot of his supporters are resistant to that. Well, and, and he ran um, against extensive uh, military engagements by the United States in fights that arguably should be taken on uh, by others. 
<clears throat> with respect to Iran, I mean, the difference between the Obama administration and the Trump administration is that the Trump administration views combating or containing Iran as the primary principal objective of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Obama didn't see it as that black and white, but they do. And there is a strategy um, involved in what the Trump administration is doing. Uh, they're hoping that sanctions are crippling enough uh, that Iran will agree to a new nuclear deal, which forbids them from enriching uh, uranium. Uh, and um, eliminates, stops in its place, its development of ballistic missiles. Or that the pressure becomes so intense internally that there is a change in government. But it does seem that President Trump himself uh, is um, highly, highly reluctant to use military force to augment that pressure. Um, and so I think we may see, I, I don't know where this goes, but I think we may see a step away from the brinksmanship, uh, although, again, I don't know what the Iranians hope to accomplish. How do you think, so, so moving forward from here, it's kind of like you don't really, it's, it's hard to predict, but it seems like at least Trump is trying to cool off this brinksmanship, uh, well, it, hoping maybe to get a deal eventually, or maybe if not get a deal, at least to have a stalemate, kind of like... I believe that he wants maximum pressure and sanctions short of military engagement. Doesn't that increase... That's, that's what I don't understand about it. Uh, and uh, the last question I want to ask about this is about just Arizona's leadership uh, on on the issue, whether we need more of it. Uh Senator Martha McSally tweeted, uh, we must continue to crank up the pressure on Iran and return to deterrence while ensuring we protect Americans and our interests in the region. And and it seems to me like this, this cranking up the pressure of, of sanctions increases the likelihood of more retaliations by Iran, which is going to increase the likelihood of, of a war. I mean, if we're trying to negotiate a new deal with Iran, um, why not try to do that uh, right now? I mean, why? Well, I guess the, why is the, the Trump administration has expressed a willingness to have those negotiations now, but what they're asking is more than the existing um, regime of ruling clerics are willing to agree to. Um, and so the hope is that you hurt them even more than they are, and and to kind of force them uh, e to e do either that. to force them to concede uh, or to force a revolt in Iran that results in a uh, different ruling class. It is a high-risk strategy, and it's a high-risk strategy based, in my judgment, on the misjudgment that Iran is this unique evil force uh, in the region and that we should side with the Saudi Arabia and the other Sunni despots in order to combat and contain uh, the Shia despots who uh, run Iran. Um, that is the animating force behind this high-risk strategy. If you say Iran with a nuclear problem, with a nuclear weapon, is a problem. We need to figure out a way to make that less likely to occur. 
but you don't consider Iran the focus of all evil in the region, or that Iran's enemies are automatically our allies, uh, then I think you wouldn't be pursuing uh, this high-risk, maximum-pressure strategy. Um, I do think it runs the risk that you mentioned, that it will put Iran in a corner, and Iran will lash out militarily in some form or way, which we will feel compelled uh, to respond to. Uh, but I do find at least a modicum of assurance uh, that uh, President Trump himself appears very much to want to avoid that outcome, whether he, <laughs> he or his people have the dexterity uh, to maneuver over the next several weeks and months uh, to avoid that outcome. Um, I don't know, and I don't have a lot of confidence about that. So I want to finish the question about <clears throat> Arizona's leadership. And this is, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, but I, you know, it just became more stark during this, you know, in, increasing uh, brinksmanship is that um, I, I feel like our, you know, our most visible leaders, and that's Kirsten Sinema, Martha McSally, uh, Governor Doug Ducey, you know, our, our two senators and our governor, it feels like they have, they're so bottled up. You know, they got this this tight, uh, you know, image PR a apparatus around them that you really don't know what they're thinking. And, and, and especially on these really controversial issues or like these, I feel like we're in a very important time uh, in, you know, in just U.S. history right now. And, and there's um, a lot of important things going on, like things going on at the border, things uh, going on with, you know, very serious uh, international conflicts. And I feel like you don't hear anything. You know, you don't think, hear anything uh, decisive from that. And I, I just, I would like to see more more leadership. And maybe they're doing it behind the scenes, I don't know. Um, but just as a, you know, as a person who lives in Arizona who would like to, who would like to hear more and more um, more candidly from from our leadership? Well, Congress has abdicated uh, its role in um, both international diplomacy. Um, the Constitution gives, for instance, the uh, economic relations with other countries um, to uh, the Congress, uh, which Congress has given the president unilateral authority to issue tariffs whenever he wants to declare a national emergency. It's, it's largely given presidents free passes to engage in military activity for at least a period of time uh, without seeking authorization from Congress. So if Congress has abdicated its role, um, then um, the question of how you respond to what an administration is doing becomes political. Uh, and so you get political answers um, rather than a substantive assertion of the role that the Constitution expected members of Congress, particularly the Senate, to play. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Congress, the Senate didn't respond to Obama not submitting the treaty by demanding that Obama submit the treaty. Right. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats were willing to go along with uh, 
avoiding the Senate making the decision that the Constitution gives only the U.S. Senate, which is to make a binding commitment for the United States. And if that had been done, and members of Congress, our members of the Senate, wouldn't simply have been free to criticize the agreement, but had to actually cast a vote that determined whether it would go forward or it would not, you might have seen a change of sentiment um, when the weight of that responsibility uh, fell directly on their shoulders rather than being able to escape responsibility by saying, we don't like this agreement, um, but the president is entering into it. Right. Well, let's finish with that. And uh, also want to get your take on the Suns draft, <laughs> highly controversial Suns draft. What grade would you give the Suns on their performance in the draft? Well, you're far more informed on this, as always, than me. Um, but I was terribly disappointed uh, with the trade of T.J. Warren and not using the sixth pick to pick the best available point guard. Uh, I think we have kissed away our mid-range game. I don't share the view that that is uh, useless uh, in the modern uh, NBA. And we've put enormous stakes on our ability to re-sign Aribe, if we don't, Oubre. then Kelly Oubre. I think that we will um, be missing some important parts. Yeah, I was sad to see. I was sad to see Warren go. I, I it, because he's put in a lot of work and it's really improved over over the years, and, and it really improved his three point shot. So it's uh, I hate to see someone who's given so much to an organization and, and really grow and, and improve and work hard have to leave, but. Um, also willing to give James Jones a benefit of the doubt on on his first draft. It seemed like he drafted himself eleventh uh, in a in a six nine three point shooter, uh, and all of our draft picks were shooters. So it, loading up on shooters, going away from the mid mid range game, and and going to the to the statist, statisticians who say that three pointers and layups is how you score efficiently in the NBA. Uh, see how it goes. Well, thanks everybody for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. You can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Overcast, uh, or any other podcasting app.